I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here as always and delighted to be joined by the returning Murray Kinsella. It's great to see your face, boss. How are you? I'm really good. I was a bit downhearted when I looked out the window this morning. It's absolutely piss and rain, but this is cheering me up seeing your faces again. I've missed you guys. Yeah, it's absolutely pissing here as well, but I'm sure everyone is... Almost relieved to have you back. Gary Doyle did an unbelievable job, by the way, of deputising in your absence. Uh, introduced a lot of statistics to the table, so we're expecting a lot from you on your return, Where You're not going to be eased into it by any means. I know Birch, Bernard Jackman, you've been looking forward to a bit more of a statistical analysis, some numbers, some digits. <laughs> so Gary upped the game in, in terms of stats. Uh, I'd love to know how many minutes uh, Murray spent watching rugby over the last two weeks and uh, how that compares to his average minutes uh, watching rugby over the course of the other 52 <laughs> weeks but uh, no, Gary Gary was brilliant he he definitely put me to shame in terms of um my my uh, my study on, on rugby and uh, yeah he, I'm looking forward to working with him again yeah he does actual prep <laughs> how did you manage those minutes Murray over the course of your fortnight off were you able to close yourself off from the world completely I know you like to do that like phone off live like a caveman basically for a couple of weeks when you get the chance yeah i do like to get off the internet a couple times a year where you just like i delete the apps off my phone it seems extreme but it is kind of refreshing i still watch the rugby i can't help myself um didn't watch absolutely everything missed some of the trans tasman stuff but caught all the interpros i mean i just i'm interested and to deny myself that would be would just be cruelty onto my own person so i keep watching you're dead right we're going to chat about the interpros from the weekend just gone today look ahead to the champions cup final and Chat a little bit as well about the development of the game in, say, non-traditional areas of Ireland, because we've done a lot of looking outwards and how we could maybe uh, offer younger players pathways and opportunities abroad and harvest more talent that way. But what about the corners of this country that we haven't really explored so far from a rugby perspective? We'll get into that a little bit later on. Murray, we'll start with yourself. I know you were chatting with Owen Toolan on Monday for members, members.the42.e, about those interpros. You've had an extra couple of days to probably watch them again or at least delve into them a bit more. And uh, We'll start with Munster, Connacht. They were, you could flip a coin. They were two great games. Um, I don't know. What was your impression of... of I was, I'm tempted to say how Munster lost that game, but... Connacht won it, you know. They actually won it and deserved to win it as well. So, um, did like how surprised were you that they were able to do that, given Munster's form going into it? Yeah, it was that was the most disappointing thing for Munster is that kind of swing. They'd had two games where it was really positive. They played some excellent rugby, particularly in that Ulster game, and you saw a bit of flow to their attack. And they possibly went a little bit away from that, and and that was to their detriment. Absolutely, Connacht deserve all the credit that they've duly been given. It's a, it's a brilliant result for them. The defensive side, it was outstanding. Niall Murray, as picked out by Birch on, on comms, just brilliant, as well as Keane Prendergast. The two of them were the kind of emblems of the defensive effort with 25 and 20 tackles each. Massive aggression. They shut Munster down at times. And they took their chances really well. The, the two scores for, I mean, 14 soft points, really, but Connacht took the scores really well. Even with the restart one, it took a bit of clever thinking and identification of Jack O'Donoghue trying to get back in time and a really excellent pinpoint kick. It's not easy to drop the kick 
exactly there and and, and Conor Fitzgerald nailed it and, and Sammy Arnold benefited and then the turnover one obviously a ball to ground from Munster a bit of muddle in, in their attacking play and Connick pounced brilliantly and Marmion's on the on the end of, of that passage so absolutely excellent stuff from, from Connick in that kind of transition area of the game but Munster will be livid with themselves for giving up points like that they missed a whole heap of opportunities down in the 22 as well I mean they had more than enough field position platform for want of a better word to to win that game and that's all stuff in their own control I know there was a lot of again I was offline at the time so I missed the kind of reaction post-match which seemed to focus heavily on the referee from from Munster people's point of view but I was surprised to see that in hindsight I didn't think that Dan Jones was decisive towards Munster yes there were probably refereeing errors there and you could pick through it all but I felt there was more than enough there for Munster to win that game so it's it's just dispiriting there was a sense of kind of renewed energy after those two wins that this Rainbow Cup was going to be a really good chance for them and it still is I mean they're still absolutely in the mix but that's a poor defeat at Tongan Park which has been a fortress I know there's no fans there but that's a result that shouldn't be acceptable to this Munster squad yeah, on the flip side, Bernard, like, I know the word historic is thrown around a little bit too readily, but what is it, Connacht's second win in Thoman since 1986 or something like that? Forgive me if I'm getting the wrong year there, but uh, a, a magnificent day out for them, and as much as, yeah, it's bitterly disappointing for Monster who seem to be building a bit of momentum, Connacht can now point towards a, a real, I don't know, milestone performance or something on their journey under Andy Friend, another one of those victories that... Uh, is evidence of you pointing yourselves in the right direction and you know Murray mentions there the couple of scores or or say two of Connick's tries were so easily preventable Monster will argue obviously all three were preventable but what was striking about the game really is how great Connick were to watch as well and how they're routinely becoming a real handful now even for teams who would expect to beat them or for teams against whom they are the underdogs they were able to produce attacking play with a kind of a flow and aesthetic quality I think that would be the envy of a lot of teams yeah they have and I think you've got you know they definitely play um, in the image of Andy Friend and, and Nigel Carlin in terms of um, wanting to express themselves uh, they know what they, they aren't they're not the biggest most powerful team uh, in actual fact their Achilles heel is their is their physicality particularly around areas like Lionel Mall um, and in the first half they're under unbelievable pressure at the scrum um, and I thought it was a brilliant bit of coaching by by Andy Friend just before halftime to take off his two props for a key scrum in the 39th minute because I've no doubt that would have led to a penalty for Munster um, and he would have kicked up the line and, and probably, you know, managed to turn it into a score. So he made a hard decision. You know, it's very difficult if you're taking off in, a, in the first half of a game, but I just thought he showed... Um, you know, quick thinking and, and conviction in the, in in that call, um, and plus his players as well. I mean, Murray, you mentioned it. You know, Fitzgerald was setting up for a um, a standard kickoff to the left, um, when he realised that Jack O'Donoghue had been getting treatment behind him, um, and obviously, uh, I think it was a Billy Holland was missing his front lifter, so he put the ball on Billy Holland's head, and and that led to a try. So, you know, they were fortuitous um, and, and and opportunist, but. They had the um, the smarts to spot the opportunities and, uh, and take them at, at key moments. Whereas Munster had so much possession, so much territory, um, and look at I understand from a Munster point of view the conditions went against them. You know, uh, it was harder to play with a little bit uh, more wit at, when they were chasing the game at the end. But 
Um, Connacht just didn't didn't give up defensively. And what I love about Connacht was, and I, to be honest, I was commentating on it at Cocom, and I was trying to think how how or why because I expected the match to go in Munster's favour. You know, based on how good Munster were the previous two weeks, based on how poor Connacht were against Leinster. Um, I expect the Munster to be dominant and, you know, I, I was going to use the excuse of, you know, Connacht's lack of squad depth and a long season uh, and it's understandable how they, they they folded to a certain extent and I was delighted to be wrong in my mind because um, I just thought, in fairness, and Ulster as well, um, they both went into games where they were probably expected to get beat well beaten and they they didn't take the easy out. They they knuckled down. They stuck together, and they made you know they made both teams fight incredibly hard. Connor got the win, and Ulster, you know, got a, a narrowish loss. But um, I just thought I thought it was a great game. I thought the referee criticism. I agree with Murray. I don't think Dan Jones was particularly biased against uh, against Munster, um, but I can understand the frustration because uh, he lost control, and um, that's not a good thing. And and in fairness, players get exasperated. Um, as as incidents happen during the game that aren't being being dealt with, and um, so I, I I can understand the frustration, but I think Munster need to look at like Munster had a very experienced team out. I mean, Forder Pack won't be there next year, um, and you know so Johan took a gamble because obviously if Munster don't win this competition or at least get to a final, and they haven't developed the next crop, I mean it's it's an absolute disaster for them. Like they, the way I saw it was Munster were going after this uh, gung ho. And it looked like they were odds on to get to at least the final. Um, and the consequence of that was a chance to win silverware, which can obviously take the pressure off the coaches, which gives the, the squad something tangible. But if you pick guys who aren't going to be there next year and you don't get to a final, you've blown what, had, what, what the other or provinces are, are, and team, a uh, lot of provinces, the Wales and Scots, the Welsh and Scots are seen, are using as a bit of a development um, uh, competition. So, that's that's interesting. That puts big pressure on Munster now. Um, obviously, the last two games um, to try and get into the final. But um, yeah, I think that Dan Jones just lost control. And and when you see the subs involved like twice in all ins and um, the, the length of time those little those little uh, bust ups lasted, the amount of back chat referees like I don't know if it's clear on camera, but the body language of both teams um, in terms of. Their confidence in the in the referees uh, was was really poor. And again, I you know, I don't want to go back to banging referees, but um, I, I I do think that it's something that we've highlighted before. I don't see I don't see any real progression. Um, and I, and I think the new laws the new laws have made it even harder for them because, um, like they're getting they're making sorry it's their inaccuracies are being shown up more often. Which again, it's great the right decisions being made, but. For a referee, for his self belief and confidence, um, you know, and for the players' belief, like so, Munster thought he scored a try through Andrew Conway through a brilliant kick from Joey Carberry, um, you know, and obviously there was a knock on with Damien Delande, but all those little wrong decisions, you know, start to get into players' minds, and I, and I think the new laws um, have made it harder for referees in a competition where they were actually struggling to keep up as it was. Can I just ask you, Bernard, uh, and we'll continue chatting about this and even some of the decisions, maybe, but. What does losing control actually mean? Like, we hear it often, and I think we have, a, most people probably would consider it a stupid question, but a, maybe a better way is, how does a referee keep control? Like, I don't know how it's Dan Jones's fault, for example, where subs are getting involved in a bit of a melee. You know, how does he prevent that from happening? I, I, I just don't get it. Look at that, look at that, and I know, 
I know he said, oh, I can't do anything about the subs um, getting involved. Um, but I think, uh, I genuinely feel, because you don't see that. How often have you seen that before? Uh, I, I like I watch a hell of a lot of rugby. I know it's getting closer. And we, we, we see, we celebrate, and it could lead to a, a bust up, whatever. But they're actually genuinely involved in the scraps. Like, I haven't I haven't seen that very often. And, and in fairness to Dan, and I, and I don't know a rule book on this, he said he couldn't do anything about it. But I think you've seen been two players, you know, um, for the second all in, or and you show that you're not going to tolerate it. I think players will push and push and push. Um, so okay, you might be able to sim in the subs, but sim in two of the players who were involved. I mean, you know, we have there was so many incidents uh, off the ball in those in those um, uh, all ins. You could have easily sent off two from each, or sim in at least two from each team, and I think that settles it down. I think players sense that the referee is 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 all talk no action and then they just become trying to enforce themselves and there's just there's a machoism that you you know you don't want to take a backward step and kind of in fairness let's be honest right so how did, what was the key to Munster beating Leinster in the first round getting stuck into them um you know not taking a backward step making every every physical um collision uh dominant messy kind of did the same thing to Munster you know, so it can take teams out of their stride. Um, but again, it has to be within the law. And I just think that for Dan, even at the end of the game, when he when he came over to the to the screen to look at the TMO for the for the uh, potential knock-on, I just felt, and again, this is my impression, he wanted that game over. He wanted it over. It was it was just, he looked like he'd lost control. And maybe that's just the body language he was portraying. I mean, uh, Peter, Peter and him spent 20 minutes on the, 15 minutes on the field afterwards going through things. And, you know, I could hear it because it was on the ref mic, and you could just hear the the frustration, the anxiety in in both in both um, Peter and and Dan's um, uh, voice. And and again, I I just sensed it during the game that uh, minute by minute it was just becoming. Um, and it's it is hard. It's an, it's an Irish into pro. There's a lot of stuff happening. Um, but yeah, like uh, look at you know there's a there's a story and and, and again. Uh, he, he, he and it's saying, but he he trained he co he did a training match in in Wales, uh you know on a Tuesday which wouldn't be high pressure high intensity and the re the coach got so flabbergasted he took the whistle off him and referee the rest of himself and he had to stand on the sideline and again like so you've got there that's a Welsh team he referees them in the Pro 14 like and I don't think that's the right thing either but um you know what do the players think of that you know what I mean in terms of getting respect. It's a very tough job for referees. It's it's very tough. But at the moment, and I, I wish I was proved wrong on this, uh, and I hope I am proved wrong, I feel I feel at the moment that level of animosity and lack of trust, both ways, both ways between players, coaches, and referees, is growing rather than diminishing. And, um, you know, I picked up on the ref mic some lots of chats, both, both ways in the, Leinster, in the Leinster Ulster game that other people might have picked up, um, which isn't it's getting further it's getting more like soccer and i'm not saying the rugby's better than soccer but uh, like i i do think we have to have a really positive relationship with referees and we're we're, we're not going down we're not looking um i don't I, yeah at the moment we're getting further away from rather than closer murray the trial laws and particularly the captain's challenge as bernard touched upon a moment ago probably don't help this either because it creates another point of contention and even if it is formal, a kind of a line of dialogue between referees and players, which is by definition argumentative. You're challenging something that you believe the referee has gotten wrong, and quite often you'll be proven right. 
which again does undermine maybe confidence in a referee. Not a nice feeling, I'd imagine, for the referee <laughs> trundling over to the screen to see a mistake in real time that they've made that a player has caught, you know. And uh, we've even seen now probably frosty moments. You think of Luke McGrath at the end of the Leinster game looking for a captain's challenge and Mike Addison telling him there's not a chance you're getting that because it was brought on by somebody from the sideline or, or ordered by somebody from the sideline. And that turns into an argument and it, it, it creates a bit of a, a bit more of an unseemly atmosphere it feels um but also and i think you touched upon this on monday it's difficult to for a fan to even celebrate now at the end of a game when the final whistle goes the game isn't really over because you know somebody's going to challenge something it's ruining the end of games already i just think bin it or bin the last five minutes part of it where you can just challenge anything because why would you not just challenge something right at the end like why wouldn't you use it if you still have your challenge therefore you're dragging the thing on you can't celebrate that brilliant last moment where the game has or should be decided. I can understand that, yeah, around the foul play and, and the tries, maybe keep that part of it because then you're getting more accuracy around decision-making or at least getting great scrutiny on it. And in fairness, with the with the try, try decisions, you're generally getting a TMO call anyway, a TMO check, same for foul play. Um, but the last five minutes part of it, I think, is just a real mess, to be honest. And yeah, maybe you're going to miss the odd the odd decision or you're going to get the odd decision wrong there but I think what we have at the moment is just messy unseemly it's antagonistic even with the monster examples like the one where they you know you're there for five minutes afterwards and Chris Buzzy is trying to get off the pitch and the players are going at him and they don't quite know what they're challenging uh, or whether they're allowed challenge it's just not a great look and it just drags the arse out of the game as well you've already got a lengthy period to complete an 80 minute match it's not 80 minutes there's always going to be TMO checks within that already um, and I think this just hasn't worked so far maybe it'll swing in the next couple of weeks but it's interesting that in Super Rugby they didn't bring it into the Trans-Tasman competition they had it in the Aotearoa they didn't use it in Australia so perhaps they just didn't want to throw it on the Aussies but I think it's because it was messy there was a lot of controversy around it and players and coaches certainly didn't enjoy it and as you say refs are just dreading those moments as well so all in all I, I can't see who's enjoying it who's enjoying the delays so bin it yeah and listen we're critical of enough things Bernard but they are just trial laws and you only find out by trialing them by definition I don't think and it's anybody's fault it was worth a go but maybe let's just draw a line under them at the end of this rainbow cup and accept that it's not something for now or at least it needs modification, right? Yeah, no, uh, look, fair play to them for trying it. it, it uh, and there has been exciting moments, the, the end game in Connacht, Ulster and Ravenhill. Um, but yeah, what we're seeing now is games two hours long. Um, every, yeah, like <laughs> anytime there's a bit of positive play or and it leads to a try, you're kind of wondering, is it going to be ruined by, you know, some little inaccuracy somewhere else? And, and it's also, yeah, I just think it's making it very difficult and all, yeah, very difficult for the referees to... To, to keep control and and uh, respect. Before we chat about Leinster Ulster, we haven't touched upon CJ Standers' comments about the officiating after the game. And I'm wondering what your your thoughts on that were, Bernard. I guess, on the one hand, you could argue it's kind of refreshing honesty. He's like, look, I'm finished. I can say what I want. On the other hand, uh, I don't know, would you say it's unfair? But it certainly creates a perception of monster or adds to a perception of monster having problems with officials and that seems to be something quite prevalent relatively recently um and it doesn't seem to be going away either so you'd imagine in the eyes of referees 
if they're going over to Munster thinking, oh, actually, like, I don't even want to referee this game, it's going to be an absolute doze dealing with Peter Romani or CJ Standard towards the end of this tournament or whoever, uh, that's not going to help Munster either, you know? I know it's probably heated the moment afterwards. He's just saying, he's speaking his mind, but I just don't see it as being helpful in any way, really. Yeah, I think there's, there's certain people would argue that it can play in your favour if you've got a, a weak set of officials um, and they don't want to have that conflict that maybe they... Um, they they're a little bit biased towards the the team who give them the most grief. That's certainly, you know, something we're considering. Um, whether it's true or not, I, I I don't know. But definitely, CJ. It's interesting. It just shows you how how much everybody is um are clamped by the fear of of the repercussions of speak of saying what you feel. You know, and and I think back to some coaches' interviews. Uh, Dan McFarland comes to mind uh, a couple of games where he wants to say something post-match but just um, you know sticks to the, the line of oh we go through the appropriate channels but you can see he knows it's not going to work um, I, I think Munster look at when Munster review that game they have to look at their discipline and how they manage that relationship uh, with, with with the referee and it didn't it didn't work for them on the occasion getting but the problem is when you play that type of rugby and, and look at i think they did it you know very well the first two rounds um but when you're trying to be ultra physical ultra disruptive um you know and also i mean like i would be honest I, i'd be shocked if leinster and, and ulster hadn't sent footage through of the previous two games to greg garner and picked out instances where monster were they overstepped the line and, and broke the law you know what I mean? So eventually it catches up on you. Um, and it happened, it happened to Ireland. It happened to Ireland under Joe, you know, giving away under five penalties a game in 2018. You know, you can be sure every country they played against were finding examples where Ireland weren't picked up on stuff. And, and hence our penalty count started to rise in 2019 without really changing our behaviour. So that's how it happens. That's um, that, that's the reality. But you find a, a, an edge. And unless you are very smart in terms of um, adapting that and... and, and, and um, making sure referees are okay with it, you, you'll get caught out. And, and then obviously when you got away with something for two weeks and you get pinged for it, you, you, you can't understand why it's, it's just, it's just human nature. But I think that's the big thing for them is, you know, having to change captain halfway um, isn't a great sign. Um, and, you know, even, even, even the way that they handled the end game with, with Dan um, wasn't, wasn't brilliant. So I think Munster do need to learn, how to do it better, um, because you know they they're not gonna they're not that good a side that they're so much better than everybody else that they can they can win um, against the better teams regardless of, of having good relationship with referee. Speaking of finding that edge, then Murray, Robbie Henshaw found one <laughs> right on the border, and I know there was loads of unbelievable rugby played in that game. We'll chat about it, but ultimately it is a pivotal moment because say if hypothetically. Leinster lost Henshaw in that moment it's a very different game he goes on to be named man of the match so his influence uh, remained throughout um, you've seen that now I don't know how many times I'm sure you've watched it back you're okay with the kind of non-decision do you think it was borderline but legal ultimately yeah for me they got it right I can understand all the concern and, and absolutely it was a dangerous situation as so many situations legally in, in rugby are. I, I don't understand what you could have under the laws of the game, under the protocols and processes and guidelines, what you could have carded him there for because the contact is onto Balakoon's shoulder and obviously there's whiplash and obviously Robbie Henshaw puts himself 
in a really dangerous position has to go for HIA. That's a massive part of it. That's a massive part of World Rugby's focus on on lowering tackle height because the tackler themselves statistically are, are in, in even more danger of, of getting a head injury from a from a, a high tackle. Um, but I just I think they went through the process step by step and it would have been for me unbelievably harsh to bin him or, or send him off for not breaking those guidelines that we've been using and that have, have been operating in, in rugby. Um, yeah, it would be way safer if he's slightly lower there. Uh, and it's absolutely, as I say, right on the margin, literally a centimetre, I think. And it is a, a red card and and, uh, and deservedly so. But he didn't go an inch higher. He, that's where he hit. And Roby's dangerous. Absolutely, it's a, it's a worrying one. As soon as I saw it, you do go, okay, that's going to be red. But then when you see the replay and the referees slow it down and they take their time with it, they didn't have the grounds there under the guidelines at the moment to, to send them off. So I can understand Ian Henderson's reaction not having seen those replays um and i can understand even the, the reaction now that people are concerned about it but at the time in the game i, I thought it was the right decision yeah bernard you can't referee ifs ultimately you can only <laughs> referee what actually happened in reality yeah 100 percent the right decision um people going mad about it um it, it's the it's the law they need to have the issue with not the actual incident uh, as murray said robbie took the risk he he didn't cross the line um and the fact that if he was two inches higher it would have been a red card that's irrelevant i mean it wasn't two inches higher you know um and the player who the player who does um make that mistake will get a red card and a big ban and that's the, that's the risk you, you, you take so um no i have no issue with it i'm surprised there was such a big furor about it because like you know the refereeing team couldn't couldn't do anything if they had made if they had sent them off it was it was it was technically wrong you know what I mean? So like, what could they do? It's really interesting with all this. And I suppose this is a positive how I think everything has kind of swung around high tackles. Like it's not that long ago. And we're not using the Henshaw example here because we've just described that as, as a correct decision. It's not that long ago that a lot of red cards for high tackles were greeted with absolute dismay. Game's gone soft. What a, what a terrible decision. It's a dangerous game. Even when there was direct high contact. Whereas now it's kind of at the opposite side of it. Like the Ross Byrne ones against Exeter were, were good examples. Again, they're, they're deb- those ones are more debatable, but the reaction was generally widespread. What I saw, it should have been cards. It should have been a more severe sanction. So, I mean, it kind of is good that everyone is so concerned and so focused and hyper aware of the height and of players' welfare. Um, but for referees and, and for players and coaches, they've got those strict guidelines that they have to adhere to. And in this case... Henshaw, in my opinion, didn't didn't break those those um, those laws. Yeah, just as interesting. I, I'm, I watch a lot of NRL, and there's absolute chaos in the NRL at the moment because they're actually trying to trying to um, uh, referee uh, stamp out those high head contacts. And you want to hear the commentators and the the ex pros? They're outraged. You know what I mean? And like, I mean, some of the stuff that that they they want to be let go, you, you get life for in rugby union. You know what I mean? And uh, um, it's just interesting. They're they're a little bit behind us, but it's the right way to go. They need to make the game safer. Uh, we all need to make all contact sports as safe as possible. But again, you know, just to reiterate, um, if you make a tackle that's within the laws, I mean, you can't get vilified for that. I don't think. Totally. You were obviously you were down in Limerick for Airsport at the time, working on the Monster game, Bernard. So you would have caught Leinster uh, retrospectively, yeah. watched it back. 
what was the difference between them uh, and Ulster for you? Uh, just composure, really, um, and just being able to um, be able to score at, at the right times. I thought Ulster really well. I was really impressed with Ulster. I thought Ulster were looking at a, a very difficult end of season, and uh, obviously that loss to Leicester, that loss to Munster, having to then go away to the RDX with Leinster chasing down, um, you know, uh, points because they'd lost the game. It looked like a recipe for disaster, and I think. Dan and, and his coaching staff and his senior players, Henderson, etc., deserve massive credit for for not down in tools and, and coming coming and putting in a performance. And it made it very difficult for Leinster. And and uh, I think they probably Leinster will be disappointed with their inability to to pull away. Um uh because it's probably the closest Ulster have got to them uh for, in my opinion, like uh for a while. Um and certainly Ulster will will feel you know, famously Dan said after the, the Pro 14 final. Not sure which one it was in the last in the last twelve months. He feels there's been so many of them. He feels they're getting maybe getting further away. Well, I think definitely going up the road uh, back to Belfast Friday night. You know, he he'll feel that they they made some strides there, and that's that's good for them. Um, but Lens, yeah, Leinster. I didn't think Leinster were ever going to lose it. To be honest, I, I think they they still have that composure at this level um, to to get the wins they need. But I thought it was a really good contest. Yeah, and and again. Um, no, I, I I just think Leinster have that depth. Um, Leinster from number twenty five to fifty are stronger than everyone else in this competition in terms of uh, squad depth. Yeah, it was a weird one afterwards, Murray. I'm not an Ulster fan, but I kind of would have presumed that Ulster fans would be like content with the performance. At least they saw a reaction, like to a couple of disappointing performances. And then on the other hand, it's like it felt like there was actually an opportunity there for them to win the game they didn't do it so there's probably an element of frustration as well but ultimately as Bernard was saying earlier I'm not I'm actually not even sure if you were saying it off air or at the start of the show Bernard but if they had gotten a thumping in Dublin it would have spelled trouble really or it would have been difficult to come back from so kind of in they found a middle ground Murray uh, performing well but losing and uh, as much as they don't sort of have something to play for in this competition going forward there was elements of their performance they can definitely take forward with them. It was certainly streets away from what was the case in Thoman Park against Munster, which was hurriedly dispiriting for them. But it was disappointing in a different way, I suppose. They did create a lot of half opportunities, of openings with their attacking play. Again, that tempo they play at, the ability to pass is lovely to watch and, and created chances, but they had a number of... I mean, Burns talking about composure, that was expressed in handling errors. Basic, very basic ones at, at times, just simple knock-ons, not under the most severe pressure. I think they conceded 16 turnovers, which is just too high a figure. Their line-out, which is generally very reliable for them, had a poor day. And that's, again, Leinster's credit as well, where James Ryan and Ryan Baird had... James Ryan had two steals and Baird had one and there was an overthrow there. So they missed out on those chances to attack as well. I mean, they should have been ahead way earlier than after, what, 18, 19 minutes. They had numerous chances before that to score in really good position on the pitch and they couldn't put them away. So there was loads there for them in the build-up without the finishing touches. Even defensively, they made Leinster um, frustrated at times. And then there was just a big slip, say, for for the Conan try where Herring and Henderson just get so disconnected. It's such a basic thing for them and it's just such a slip compared to how they defended for, for the rest of the game. Uh, and Leinster go through and get a, a rather easy score. 
Um, and then Leinster kicked well. They they realised that the, the Ulster defence generally was was going to be pretty solid, and they kicked well and put them in stressful situations, and and got chances off the back of that. So it showed their ability to change change their approach to to vary their uh, their style to to the situation, and and that was encouraging from from their point of view. Yeah, it was better for Ulster, but it is. I mean, that's three losses from three, and and it's just a dispiriting end to the season unless they can get a bit of positivity in, in the next two games the final two games even missing someone like Will Addison after all that long time and he has that suspension deservedly for his red card but it just gives you one of those bright points um, or sorry takes away one of those bright points so it's a frustrating old end to the season for them one that promised loads and, and ended in, in in rather damp fashion I suppose in, in the Challenge Cup and now in the in the Rainbow Cup as well Conversely then Bernard like Leinster for a team who suffered the crippling blow of underperforming or performing below par in their European semi-final are flying it again and they're kind of winning games in different ways now we saw like a massive reaction in Connacht to them going behind Ulster game was more nip and tuck and probably their defence more so than their attack proved pivotal and suddenly there's the prospect of a North versus South final in this competition as well there's a trophy on the line so they're kind of looking or resembling the Leinster we saw earlier this season and might be even a little bit better in certain ways I don't know if, yeah it's hard to judge them if they're better uh, look at against Connacht they were very impressive um, but I think we we know this we, we, we know that the, that in this competition um, they are they have that extra extra 5 or 6% when they need it um, I think it'd be really good for them to to play the Bulls or the, or the Sharks just just so we see how they compete, and, and it's probably the the profile they will come up against in a, in in um, in that playoff game or that final will, is what they what they struggle with in Europe at times that power game. Now, I haven't been very impressed with the South African teams uh, so far. Uh, they definitely need games, and hopefully, hopefully by the time the final comes around, um, they're they're match ready. But it's going to be a huge task for Razi Erasmus to. Um, to get that t- the best of those guys, obviously, uh, who are match shy, and then combine them with, with the guys from Europe who are uh, match fatigue, uh, and and get them up to a level to beat the Lions. But yeah, I I think from Lenser's point of view, to be able to get to the final, having lost the first game, will be another notch under uh, on their bedpost, and uh, it'd be just good to see for them. I think they want to play against a different profile team to try and. Um, overcome the the demons of the of the Larishels and and the Saracens. How about James Ryan then, Bernard? And if we're talking about sort of reactions, <laughs> uh, we've been I'd say justifiably lukewarm on his recent form. And listen, he missed out in the Lions. It's no secret, and hasn't been playing to scratch or to par for himself. And last weekend seemed to be a, a little bit of a, a return to form or a rediscovery of some of that previous form. Um, the kind of thing that would excite Leinster fans, considering the player that we know he can be. Yeah, it was it was brilliant. It was a brilliant reaction. Um, he was just so dominant, back to his energetic self. Um, huge impacts uh, regularly throughout the game, and yeah, look at that. That's the big. The frustrating thing for him was that the, the game we saw him play against Ulster is his standard game. Like that's he's very consistent. Um, that's why when he's when he's fit and and match ready and and um uh, and i suppose uh has a point to prove which he normally does uh he is among the best in the world unfortunately he just had that injury at the wrong time and, and didn't hit his straps straight away and that's often the case come back from a, a concussion injury so um 
yeah, it's, it's disappointing for him with the lines. But look at, I mean, I'd be shocked if there's not an injury to one of the locks and uh, um, at some stage. And and if he puts in those kind of performances, he's he's for me he's automatically first man on standby. He he needs to he needs to keep adding to his game as well. He's an absolutely outstanding player, but he's still young and he's still, I think, got so much further potential. I mean the passing handling side of his game you've seen elements of Leinster and Ireland trying to push him in that regard I think they can get more out of him there you think of Alan Wynne-Jones he comes up with some brilliant offloads and passes from from time to time or you look at Henderson and Byrne his rivals guys who got ahead of him who have an unbelievable turnover threat now that's not going to be James Ryan's skill set but having those bits of I suppose X factor is a weird term to use with a second row but that stuff is brilliant and that's why it's been so encouraging to see his line-out defence in particular massively improve over the last year, I think, especially. He's been an absolute pest there, a menace there and, and he's increasingly becoming someone who you really worry about in that Pedro Manny mould. He's done that for years for Ireland and Ryan is definitely taking up that mantle now but I think there's loads left in his game and obviously he's going to be really pissed off, disappointed, frustrated with how the last year has gone in terms of, as Bernie mentioned, getting that run but it's also a nice impetus to, to just keep on getting better. He would have had that mindset anyway. That's the kind of person and player he is. Um, but I still think we've got a lot more to see from him. Let's look ahead then to this weekend's European final. I'll stick with yourself, Murray, because I think in normal years, if you had an all-French final, you'd have absolute diehard rugby fans looking forward to it like they usually would, a game between two class outfits. You'd have the more casual rugby fans kind of going, I'll watch it, but I'm not excited for it. I'm not really going to follow the build-up because it's essentially a top 14 game uh, with a different banner. Uh, I presume, though, you would be absolutely glued to it regardless. And yet this year, you have the added uh, factor for Irish fans or Irish consumers of rugby of Raj being involved. And I think everybody's engaged with it. I think there are a lot of La Rochelle fans in the country this week. And that feels weird even because people love watching Toulouse. So there is that ad- added sprinkling of ins- of excitement and anticipation for this one just because one of our own is involved. Definitely. And the intrigue of it being the four-time aristocrats of European rugby in Toulouse against a, an emerging force, a team who hasn't been in this position before and who have this amazing sense of energy and self-belief around them. Even the scenes before the, the Leinster semi-final, and Will Skelton was saying the other day, he's not sure it was very COVID-friendly that they had a 1,000 fans outside, but it was still pretty cool to see the, the passion that the, the town has for it. Um, and by all accounts, there's unbelievable excitement over there. And it's it's just thrilling to kind of see that, to see their rise and, and the excitement they have and the confidence they have as well. Again, it struck me on the Ron O'Gara and Skelton calls this week how they're not talking themselves down. They're absolutely paying respect to, to Toulouse's history. But as O'Gara said before the Leinster game, if we play to our potential, then there's no reason we can't win. They were confident that if they did so, they were better than Leinster. And, and so proved the case in convincing fashion. And they have a belief that they can do that against Toulouse as well. And, and when you watch it against Leinster, it's, it's hard to disagree. It's such a potent mix of power and size and physicality with some brilliant attacking play they're capable of offloading as we know well but also you saw their kicking smarts and their maturity and that side of the game against Leinster as well there was a real balance to it and they they talk a lot about that the the phrase seems to be having lots of different tools in your toolbox again something we've heard a few times this week so I'm, I'm I've been really enjoying their their rise and the energy around the club they're clearly well coached they're clearly a happy group with a 
a brilliant fan base behind them when when fans are in the stadiums they've got the best support in, in france um in terms of the attendances as well so it, it is a, a an intriguing fixture in that sense the irish element definitely helps and, and O'Gara is just a riveting figure again we didn't quite expect him to be put up for media this week but there he popped up on the call he did 20 minutes in in french with his cork accent it was brilliant to watch and then he he spoke to the ireland mafia as he called the irish journalists on the call and and he was just engaging he's just an engaging guy he's really interesting to listen to talking about coaching and yeah it's a it's a it's a fascinating matchup just while we're on the topic of his being engaging bernard uh, how can he afford to be like that or why is he like that so transparent and so engaging with media with his punditry even post-match interviews he seems to wear his heart on his sleeve and you think of head coaches at that level of elite sport not just rugby and how alien that is for them I mean most of them don't want to be in the newspaper headlines and they uh, say as little as possible or give away as little as possible often upon instructions of the club or media trainers and he doesn't seem to have been diluted or had any of his personality eroded despite being in that role what makes him different why does he why does he take that risk I suppose as it might be seen by some coaches Look, he's he's obviously very authentic, and um, he is a very personal uh, man uh, and, and and human being, and uh, he's just a good natured, like uh, he's just a really good natured, kind, uh, kind person who likes to engage with people and look after people, and so that's that's part of it. Also, I would say, and that's, sorry, it's a big part of it, but also I would say, he like he, his coaching has been in France, and in fairness to France, you aren't. You are allowed to be yourself. They want you to be yourself, and you're allowed to express yourself. I mean, I I tweeted a an interview with Christoph Urias, um, you know, a press conference with Christoph Urias, who's a coach at Bordeaux, and every time you you listen to him speak, he 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 speaks completely from the heart without any worries about, um, you know, how it's going to be taken. He just is himself, and that's pretty much uh, more common in France than it is in England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Um, and I would say New Zealand. There's a huge focus in New Zealand about being authentic as well. And I know Scott Robertson is the is the most obvious, you know, uh, profile in that. But throughout New Zealand rugby, I'm lucky enough. I'm in a um, a couple of coaching networks with with them, and, and they put a huge amount of of focus on. And it's going back to Wayne Smith's time about you know being the best version of yourself and not trying to copy anybody else and being comfortable in that. And I think once you know you are, uh, and it's sad that it's it's so. It's so regimented here, and people don't give away anything. And it's, and it's players and and coaches um, who just told a party line, uh, and they just become robots. And um, I, it must be more way more enjoyable to to just actually answer questions as you as you see them. Um, try and engage with people, have a laugh when when you can, be annoyed when you when you are annoyed, um, rather than trying to just tick boxes and and. Um, go around in camouflage all the time and that's but definitely in france at all levels of, of french sport at all levels of french sport for good or bad you generally see coaches and managers um being true to themselves and not being afraid to express their own personality um which is makes it more interesting i mean like they're miles ahead of us in terms of engaging with sponsors engaging with with fans the public every train session is is open policy your, your your club your club put their schedule up for the week on the website so fans can come the, the retired the out of work um you know the kids they come to training and they meet the players before and after and if they want to go into the dressing room 
you know, they do. The journalists can go in and do interviews. The sponsors come in to address them at halftime. Now, I'm not saying that's all good or good, but they're very focused on on their need to survive commercially by engaging with people. And, and the La Rochelle project, I mean, um, you know, that was based around bringing the community behind them. I mean, the president, that was his, that was part of his plan. And, you know, I think they've got over 200 sponsors and they've obviously set out every week. You don't get that just by being good on the pitch. You get that with, by being um, visible in the, in society and the community. And uh, yeah, I think it's brilliant. I also think from our shell point of view, um, you know, you have John O'Gibbs, who I think has won three, three hunting cups. You have Rogers won two as a player, been to a final um, with Racing, from what I remember, won Super Rugby with Crusaders twice, won a top 14 with Racing. Their head of S&C has won two with Leinster. Um, you know, Will Skelton, I think he's won one with Saracens. You know, Carballo, I think, has won a, a Super Rugby with the uh, with the Hurricanes. You know, the likes of Olivion, uh, Bougeri, they're good enough to win a European Cup. You know what I mean? They are good enough to win the European Cup. So I think they're right not to have any fear and to embrace this um, and, you know, have a right crack at it and don't lose it because you haven't, put yourself out there to, to win it. And I'm not saying they're going to win it. Toulouse are a formidable side, but um, I think, to like, if, if Leinster had beaten La Rochelle, we'd be giving them an unbelievable chance against Toulouse. And when you look back on that game, I think La Rochelle were dominant and could have won by more. So, you know, we have to give them a fighter's chance. Well, that's the thing about this final as well, Murray, is that there is a narrative around it being the newbies the rookies in their first european final against the aristocrats and yet in the semi-final it was the same thing and la rochelle frankly didn't give a shit so they won't either this weekend particularly against even more familiar opposition yeah and that, that's what i'm saying that's what makes it so enjoyable to to follow them as burn says the quality of player and ogara said this you know he he looks at his squad and he goes we should be in a champions cup final the the amount of sheer quality they have through their team i'm not going to list out the players people can look through their squad there is there's world cup winners there's internationals there's high profile signings from abroad and and they've brought them together in, in a lovely mix and the players are really enjoying playing under himself and john o'gibbs um so yeah that that is the fascinating part of it i totally agree with bernard there on, on french rugby it's a, a great point about how, how they do things right there and how it is open we we've kind of touched on it before actually the other day um i found an old document from when i was in the academy and it was media training we did this thing where we went through what to do and what not to do and it's absolutely hilarious it basically says don't have a personality in very short form and um, don't be yourself just stick to the party line so that is a real shame and I love that part of French rugby. I love the passions you see in, in interviews and the personalities you see and the openness to it all. It's definitely something we can learn from. If you enjoy Rugby Weekly every Thursday but reckon you could do with an added weekly fix of rugby analysis, then become a member of the 42 for the measly cost of a takeaway pint per month. First of all, look, forget about takeaway pints. Or the discount price of €42 Euro for a full year and tune into Rugby Weekly Extra every Monday when Murray Kinsella and Kintetsu Liner's head of analysis, Owen Toulon, go under the hood to inspect the weekend's action from both hemispheres. I'm glad I'm talking to you because I'm in day six of hotel quarantine in Melbourne, so not gone mad just yet. The 42 membership also gives you access to the famed Members Rugby WhatsApp group, the participants in which help to steer our pod coverage, and insiders' emails from Murray, Gary Doyle, and our team of rugby writers. 
Of course, you'll also be supporting the 42's independent sports journalism. And that support has never been more important in helping us to bring you even more insight, analysis and rugby reportage from the keenest eyes and the sharpest minds in the game. To join the 42, visit members.the42.ie. Yeah, we can all probably learn a little bit from what Toulouse have done as well to give them their dues uh, on the other side of this final, Bernard. We've probably spoken about that uh, renaissance and resurgence of Toulouse's and even this season as they've gone along. But it's been equally a really impressive run of results, just hard, cold facts on the way to this final and the performance they've produced along the way as well. It hasn't just been about Jouet and some of the things we've associated with Toulouse. They bring a kind of a physicality now to the table that La Rochelle were able to use to their advantage against Leinster. So it's not as though La Rochelle's physical advantage or, or physicality is unparalleled at all in this final. It, it should be well matched against Toulouse, you'd imagine. Yeah, I know for sure. They uh, Toulouse are equally uh, as powerful. And I mean, um, the little battle, everyone, you know, everyone's talking about the flash players like Dupont and, and Kobe and um um and but I actually think Skelton against Joe Takori, um that's gonna be two absolute monsters. Um, you know, go ahead. Joe Takori is, is an unbelievable um a case study in terms of longevity. Uh, you know, he, he came to cast as a as a young as a young skinny um, you know, New Zealand via Samoa back row and uh uh, a back back row slash lock, and he's just become one of the, the most consistent players in the in the top fourteen, and and um, is still going. And I, I think he's a big part of of Toulouse being able to match that power of of, of La Rochelle. Um, look, it's probably going to come down to one moment of magic. Both players, both teams have have those individuals, whether it's a you know a, it's a Hay West or it's a, a Body or. You know, a, a Dupont or or or, or Kobe, um, or Intermac. There's a rumor Intermac might be playing twelve. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so that that could be interesting as well. Obviously, gives him a second playmaker. Um, but I imagine Raj and and Jono will look to to target uh, that seam that seam quite early if that's the case. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I look forward to it actually, and it could be like the two. Let's not forget the the all French games in the knockout stage so far have been absolutely. Turgid, um, and it could turn into that. Um, and neither team will care as, as long as they win. But it could open up. It could open up and could be a, a phenomenal game. Skelton has been absolutely sensational this year. He's, you probably ask Ronald Gar about his most important player, and he'll point to Will Skelton. The size, power, ability to offload. He's doing it all really for them. And it was interesting to hear him during the week talk about how the first time they played to lose this season. After the match, Ogar ripped into himself, um, Lopetti Tamani and Weenie Antonio in front of everyone said, you guys aren't fit enough, it's not acceptable. They went away, they had a two-week break, they flogged these guys and a couple others, I think. And you've seen with Skelton, definitely in the best shape of his life. He's still absolutely gigantic, but he's, his output over longer periods is way better. And it, like he's one of the most dominant players in, in world rugby right now. The Wallabies must be doing absolutely everything within their power to change whatever eligibility rules they have to to make sure that they can reintegrate him because he is unbelievably influential and I agree with Bernard even arguably more so than those high profile x-factor players like the the value of a man mountain is arguably even more important than ever Um, and it's an interesting one for Leinster I know we've kind of chatted about it Birch like you know you look at that semi-final and they really could have used a Will Skelton and and obviously they they go homegrown as much as possible and Fardy's retiring and they're not gonna it looks like at the moment bring in another kind of foreign 
player in those positions, but you can see the value of it with, with Skelton. He's been one of the most influential players in, in the in the entire game this year, and um, he's been brilliant to watch. Top players win you tournaments. Like they, the the players with that extra class, that X factor, win you tournaments. I'm going back to 2009 when Rocky Elson came into Leinster. I think six man the matches in nine games. I mean that's that's what they can do. They have that ability to to step up at the highest level, and I think Leinster could do with one more of those. Um, uh, in terms of the game, I actually go. I'm going La Rochelle. I think La Rochelle have momentum, um, and uh, yeah, I think a couple of injuries to Toulouse, and I, I fancy La Rochelle this week. Murray, I go Toulouse. My romantic heart still adores Toulouse Rugby Club, um, so I stick. I stick loyal to them. <laughs> Well, speaking of rugby and romance, let's chat about Tala and uh, and some of those areas that we mentioned at the top of the show that maybe rugby could be doing a little bit more to break into. Now, Tala is a, an example, obviously, of where there is a burgeoning rugby club. You had a brilliant piece on them about, what, a year ago, Murray? You went over there and, and spoke to some of the people involved in the club, which is on the 42. And we've seen recently their pitch was vandalized again. Their, the fundraising is going well uh, in response to that. But it just felt like we should mention that uh before talking about some of the areas that rugby hasn't been able to kind of uh manifest itself in this country and you know we'll probably get on to uh criticizing the irfu in ways for uh not growing the sport in certain parts of the country tala to be fair murray i think in its origins was actually born of a kind of an irfu uh, scheme, if you like, like there was the Tala project. What two thousand and two? You might be able to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, it doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. The Tala project was obviously to get people playing rugby in that area, um, and the rugby club was, as you say, born out of that. And I was over there just before lockdown. Now it seems like a longer time ago, and there's brilliant work going on there. Like really, obviously, humble beginnings as a club, um, and they have two teams training. They've a women's team, their girls' team play a kind of combined, it's called the Bistos, with a couple other clubs. And there's real ambition and energy, and it was a really enjoyable visit, I have to say. Some great people in the club working to improve rugby standing in the area, and that's been a real battle for them. I spoke to a couple of the guys, and they said, you know, in a predominantly working-class area, one of the issues was getting people to actually engage with rugby and not see it just as an elitist, snobby sport. Um, and they've been breaking down that barrier slowly but surely and yet there's so much potential there that was the main thing I took away from it like the desire to tap that potential what is there 75,000 people or maybe more now living in in Tala area and you know they've 35 men training each Tuesday and Thursday which is a brilliant number and, and they deserve credit for getting that but imagine if you got those numbers up even further if you flooded the mini section with players coming through Imagine what a, I suppose, a potential resource that could be for, for Irish rugby. And, and that's where they want to get to. The vandalism is an absolute disgrace. Just sad to see it again, that people have no regard for the hard work that others do. Um, but it kind of highlights, again, how they don't have their own, Talef or FC don't have their own um, grounds. You know, that's a council plot, pitch 100, that they train on. They don't have a clubhouse, which is obviously a massive part for, for any club and inc- helps you increase engagement, helps you get people attached to the club. Uh, and gives you a, a home like that's the 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 fundraising at the moment it's called forever home because that's what they want and and it's been brilliant to see over 20k i think at the moment that they've raised so far so clearly people want to see this get off the ground but 
yeah absolutely more can be done there they from their point of view they said to me you know they are a few absolutely are helping us out they've had visits from collie mcintee ultan o'callan was there joe schmidt and richie murphy even popped out at times to visit and that's all great absolutely one-off stuff but like if the RFU could fund them to help them get a, a, their own grounds and, and a clubhouse, I think the value to the union, just in terms of people playing the game, but also further down the line, potentially um, players going into the professional game could be astronomical, really. It's a, it's a massive area. And loads of talented sports people who I think could, could potentially play rugby. There's obviously a lot of football and GAA there, some big clubs who are well-established, um, and it would take a lot of time to, to change that. But... I think the RFU and, and Irish rugby really needs to be serious about that. There's development officer again. I should mention there's there's a Leinster rugby development officer and officers who who do so much thankless work on the ground and 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 do their best in that regard to to spread the word. But I'm sure that they tell you privately that they could do with a bit more resource as well. So um, obviously it's a tricky time financially. What what's going on in the union and the game? But as the sport recovers, I think stuff like this. It's it's one example, Tala. But I think stuff like this. In terms of growing the playing base, in terms of growing also the d- diversity of players in the game, is as important as as so much of the other stuff that's going on, even in the, the professional game. So I think it's really worthy of investment, um, and the desire is out there in places like Tala. Yeah, we're we're using Tala as an example, Bernard. But like the club is topical at the moment, and it's one where, like, clearly that the club itself was born of an effort to create something like this and it's been a, a success in many ways and its success will continue but I think the population now is, is actually closer to nearly 100,000 at this point maybe like there's a kind of a greater Tala area right I remember in school honestly like it's just a fact that stuck with me and like from primary school or maybe early secondary school in geography where the teacher was like if you separate a Tala from Dublin I think it'd be the second biggest city in the country or something like that that might have changed in recent years, but I always just thought of Tala as being massive because of that. And then you think of like the cities that contribute the most rugby players to, say, the national team in Ireland. Like the population of Cork is uh, Cork City is about one hundred and twenty-five thousand, I think. And say if Tala is one hundred thousand, it does speak to just a massive potential resource and potential playing base for it. But and the, and this is just Tala. There are loads of areas like this across the country where rugby just hasn't infiltrated it doesn't have a presence there and there aren't kids growing up who want to be rugby players in so many of these areas so when we're having conversations like last week's or maybe the week prior about um the need to even harness potentially other leagues foreign leagues in order to generate more talent more high level talent uh, for uh, irish rugby we also do need to be a bit more introspective and look at areas where we could be producing more talent on the ground here rather than having to res- uh, outsource it yeah, I think um, you make a great point. And I think West Dublin is another example. Look at any of the big um, uh, cosmopolitan areas that aren't traditionally served uh, as rugby clubs. And we have done a very poor job of of growing the player base in non-traditional areas. And I know, you know, Ty Furlong's a brilliant example of of New Ross, Sean O'Brien, Portolo, you know, but John Hayes, you know, came, came from Rural Club. I don't think we're actually too bad in the Rural Clubs. They're actually thriving to some extent. Um, but it's those big cosmopolitan areas that haven't traditionally uh, played rugby. And I think it's surprising. And I think there's some great work being done. I, I would agree with Murray. I think the development officers, you know, I know the guys who serve, uh, look after Clondalk and Tala, you know, they are working hard and, and, and doing great work. But for whatever reason, um, I don't think any of the initiatives that we've pushed 
have really got massive buy-in. Um, and I was speaking to a, a former Irish athlete last week and, you know, because, you know, every time I look at, uh, I read the paper or look online now, we seem to be breaking records uh, in athletics. It seems to be a, um, a golden era. And I, and I, I just asked, I asked her, well, what's it down to? And she said that um, the talent ID pathways uh, sorry, and, and, the, and the athlete development pathways are far superior now to what they were you know, uh, 10 years ago when, when she was competing. So they're, they're finding these um, really talented athletes and they're they're nurturing them and they're giving them a, a pathway. And, and I mean, I know you can be professional if you get carded in, in athletics. And I know there's scholarships, opportunities to, to go to the, the States and, and, and that's brilliant. But, you know, from a rugby point of view, you know, it's a professional sport. Um, it, it's high profile. Okay, you're not going to get super rich like soccer, but um, I definitely think that... Uh, we are potential. Well, I look. I'd love to see. I'd love to see us really go after um, growing the games, the game in in other areas of the of the big cities in particular. Um, along with obviously continue to push the rural stuff, um, and just seeing can we can we find you know more talent? I'm not even find more talent. Forget about the the elite. Just actually uh, create more clubs and, and get more people involved in the game. And, and if if you find one or two superstars, you know that's great. But again, I mean, you know the uh, people who, who love rugby's job is to is to promote rugby and try and to help it grow and and I, I think we're we're probably not at, I look at I'm sure there's someone up there if you ring me now and tell me give me bombard me with with stats um <laughs> around around the progress and, that, and that's great but I, I, anecdotally I, I think we could do more mm. and and that's a key thing is that you point out there Bernard. like the grassroots and the foundation of the game is as important as what's up on top and obviously all the money that comes in is the men's national team it's 80 percent of their their income is is fans going to watch that and buying merchandise and all that kind of stuff but without the stuff underneath you don't have a game maris brosnan did a really good article on the on the 42 was it this week about aussie rugby and that as an example and how the foundations have fallen away and and things above it crumble then and i think it's a really pertinent example for for Irish rugby as the article pointed out because as we've spoken about there is and I mean Bernard you were you're quoting the article what you said about the disenfranchised kind of club game where those people actually don't even like professional rugby or they don't want to go to those games they don't want to engage with it um, and that divide is is a massive thing so like what are the RFU doing to try and get the game into non-traditional areas anytime you ask David Nusafora he's talking about sevens this is from last year, I think. Um, he said, the utilisation of rugby sevens to get into schools that don't play rugby as a fixed sport is an opportunity for us to expand the game. That's the obvious way to get players who aren't familiar um, into the game. Um, and they've got initiatives. They've got the ex-rugby sevens, which I think is just for girls. It could be mistaken there. And absolutely has got got people involved. But, I mean, you can, you can go down that route or else you can kind of invest in the clubs. That, for me, is what it always comes back to, the simplest solution. Again, let's go back to our Tala example. That club with a clubhouse, with a bit more resource, with a bit more opportunity to get out into the community and convince people to, to get down, be part of the club, play the sport, not even to, to chase an elite career, but hopefully get a few elite players from Tala because that has major knock-on effects for everything that comes behind. And there's a the kind of symbol at the the top of it for people to chase um i think you get a, a big return from that and in fairness as you say Bernard, they'll, they'll come back with numbers you look at the spend on domestic game pre 
pre-COVID and it had increased. In 2017-18, it was 10.5 million. That was up to 14 million in 2019-20. That's across the domestic and community rugby. So there is that in, intent there. But as you say, it hasn't really had an obvious impact yet. Maybe we're missing it because we're, we're not on the ground in all these different places across the country and, and maybe the effects will be, be felt in the coming years. But it does feel like there's a whole lot to, to go there in terms of, of getting people into the game. Like to me, it's still baffling and obviously I've got such an interview because I'm involved in in rugby that more more athletes, young athletes probably don't go, what you know, I'll, I'll go and play rugby because that's a professional sport. Instead, they're they're going to have the pride of representing their, their county in, in football or hurling. And that, that's absolutely outstanding. I'm not trying to diminish that. But maybe if a few more of those athletes had a genuine decision to make, then even the, the Ireland national team would be even, even in better condition. So I think there's loads of scope and potential and opportunity there in, in the coming years for, for Irish rugby. Yeah, just quickly on that, I think if you look at the Aussie Aussie sport, um, uh, like a lot of their talent ID comes from talent targeting young athletes in other sports. Um, uh, so, for example, um, the Aussie rules obviously come over here and target some GA players to add to their mix, but they're also... You know the the rugby union uh, professional franchise and the rugby league professional franchise are all over. Um, you know the the school kids who play the talented rugby union players or the talented rugby league players early to try and get them into their into their system. And I and I'm not saying like I, I love GA as well. Um, but the best athletes in Ireland because of numbers are actually playing Gaelic uh, or hurling at the at the moment. And there hasn't been any initiative that I've seen to go and target them so when you take it for granted that the aussie rules come over here pre-covid and, and and they run those scouting camps and training camps you can be guaranteed those kids are freak athletes uh they're exceptional athletes uh if not they wouldn't be at the camp because they that's the priority for them um is to get a really good athlete who's played a um a ball game and they'll skill they'll teach them the skills of how to be um an aussie rules player uh, i don't think it'd be rocket science to say you couldn't teach a really good athlete how to play rugby uh, rugby union but you just need to start early um, you need to have an individualized plan um, and find the right the right uh, targets really and that's not just physical it's also mental and and, and interest etc but you're probably you're gonna probably at the moment you're gonna get a, a young 17 year old Irish athlete who has played a bit of rugby anyway some way through through school or, or, or soccer or whatever they have exam uh, they have history and experience of, of other sports so i think yeah it's it's one of these ones that we say we're the best in the world and we've got unbelievable programs um but yet there's very little creativity in it even inwardly you know mm. and it all helps as well i know i, I know you're gonna make a point Gab, briefly quickly um just with the support as well like one of the issues in really blunt terms is that still a lot of people in rugby in ireland they actively dislike rugby and they see it as a as we said earlier, elitist, snobby thing. And when they look at the Ireland team, a lot of it is people they can't really, I suppose, identify with. Um, the, the school system is a massive strength for Irish rugby. And, and absolutely, we, we, we've acknowledged that and highlighted it repeatedly. Um, Fee-paying schools providing such a, a strong portion of it. But you need diversity and it benefits from diversity. Even though you mentioned, Bernard, the examples of John Hayes and Tyke Furlong held up the team at a tight head prop those kind of farming backgrounds. The Leinster youths have obviously got this massive influx of players into the game. At the moment, it's really encouraging to see, even in Connacht, there's Paul Boyle, the Masterson's, Jack Anger, 
Sean O'Brien, Connor Oliver, they're all coming from Leinster Youths to, to play Frawley, Martin Maloney and Leinster itself. And that's wonderful. But there's a whole other part of Irish society that I, I think probably doesn't really engage with the game. Um, and absolutely can if there, if there are people there they can identify with. The, the whole thing benefits from it. Everyone benefits from more diversity. And you just hope that Irish rugby can, uh, can appeal to, to more people. Like looking at their strategic plan, one of the, the things they call is supporting enabler that allows them to deliver their core business is keeping rugby at the forefront of Irish communities. And the first way to do it, they have effectively positioning Irish rugby in the minds of all stakeholders through an agreed brand strategy supported by an inspiring na- narrative and underpinned by our values. It's kind of hard to know what that means, but where do I sign up? It doesn't cry where out do I that they're going to well, start winning hearts gee, and minds. Get my, my scrum cap on. <laughs> yeah, no. that's inspirational. <laughs> like I, I just but worry that there's actually, a yeah, yeah, yeah. You read that and you worry that you read that and you worry that it's not going to change and that there's not a massive desire to to change it there at the, at the moment. So I'd love in my lifetime covering rugby that at the end of my career whatever whenever i finish up doing this that there's more people that are sorry there's few people that just dislike the sport in in, in and it's more diverse so you'd love to see it happen over the course of the next couple of decades and it is a, a long-term thing but there's loads of bits you can be doing around it yeah we don't when we just when we just put out corporate speak i mean um like i, I there was a press release last week about our, our new talent id systems and i mean you know, it's hard to read it. It's hard to read it. It's just so full of uh, jargon and nonsense. Um, and then, you know, it looks, whoever, whoever writes it obviously feels, oh, I'll bamboozle them with, with science uh, and, and make myself sound intelligent. But the reality is, you know, it's, it's about actually getting the right people playing the game and, and looking after them. <laughs> that's, that's, that, uh, that sounds very simple, but I'll tell you what, you wouldn't go far wrong. And you, go to New Zealand, go to New Zealand and, and look at how they produce players um there's obviously a model um and there's science behind it but they just try and get really good coaches uh who are all aligned uh working with the with as many kids as they can and and the talent and getting them playing good competitions good training sessions and the talent rises funny enough yeah i I was just going to make the point as well murray uh you you touched upon it about say people not liking the sport like this rugby has an image problem in this country that might sound weird like to listeners of this podcast but uh, there are people who see it as elitist, but also people who almost um, reflexively reject rugby's advances, if you like, or, or rugby's attempt to try and be more communal because of the corporate speak to which Bernard and yourself allude, like the Vodafone ads. I know I'm, I'm not slamming the brand here, like if anyone from Vodafone is listening, chill out, but hashtag team of us pisses a lot of people off. When, when those ads started to air before the World Cup, it was like they were trying to claim people who weren't fans of rugby and and kind of didn't feel as though rugby had earned their support in a way because it's not in their communities and then suddenly you're watching this big glossy ad with international players and you're supposed to be on board of this thing you know and uh, a lot a lot of it actually is kind of language you know not just uh, elitism and sociologically but uh, feeling of people being locked out of the sport because of some of the jargon probably and, and some of that corporate speak and there are we're, we've mentioned a couple of areas today, but it's huge swathes of the country. Really, we're talking about. Mm. Well, well, what we're kind of saying is like one of the ways you do it is by having more people in the team or different types of people in those professional teams that 
more people can identify with and engage with and I, I think it's just anytime you speak to someone in rugby in Irish rugby in particular who's got a slightly different backstory it's just so refreshing and energizing and I noticed that people really t- tend to engage with those articles or those interviews where it's not just the same background come through to fee paying school and again I'm not trying to say that that's wrong in any way it's and that's brilliant for Irish rugby and and I've nothing against that whatsoever but it can be a little bit samey and I can see why people would look at it and go that's not really for me so I, I think we could talk about this for, for hours and hours I'm sure we'll come back to it I'd love actually if people got onto us give us a shout an email I'm Murray at the 42.e and let us know their thoughts on it and um, because I think it's a really interesting topic and, and there's so many different avenues and people have different experiences with it so um, give us a shout yeah we'll come back to it someday but we've gone about an hour and a quarter so let's wrap it for today Bernard thank you as always thanks guys sorry for talking so much <laughs> not at all Murray thank you yeah it was good to be back lads really enjoyed it have a, have a good weekend sensational return thanks a million to all of you at home for tuning in as well members.the42.ie if you want to get more rugby podcasts Murray and Owen Toulon chatting on Mondays uh, and they'll be back on Monday for members we'll be back in this slot next Thursday otherwise so until then mind yourselves enjoy the Champions Cup final over the weekend take it easy I don't think we've met before but I'm the referee on this field Leinster could have me five mil a year I wouldn't go it is Robbie Robbie weekly in the first pass oh, oh, oh.